You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. FYI, there's some adult language in this episode. I'm guessing you've probably had this experience at least once. You went to see a play at a local theater or attended a lecture on a university campus. And before the event started, somebody got up and made a land acknowledgement. In many other cases, to recognize that we are in the homelands and rivers of the Potawatomi and Miami people. I'd like to recognize the Algonquin Nation on whose traditional territory we are gathering. We acknowledge that... ...city maintains a strong reciprocal relationship with the Miami tribe of Oklahoma. Our land acknowledgement exists to reaffirm the Miamia people's deep connection to their homelands and our commitment to each other. You've even heard this podcast's land acknowledgement at the end of every episode, a list of the original people of the area. It's a popular way that the American public is attempting to reckon with its history of genocide. But maybe you're like me, and you sat in the audience wondering, okay, interesting. But what do indigenous leaders and history keepers really think about these? Well, I decided to ask. As I've been traveling around the American West doing interviews, I've collected a bunch of feedback on that question. What I've discovered is there's a lot of diverging thoughts about them, but there's also a lot of consensus, especially if these acknowledgements lead to conversations about how to get the land back for real like for real, for real. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Land acknowledgements are complicated. You know, I think the value of land acknowledgements is the fact that they're just saying like, hey, you know what, this don't belong to us, (laughs) you know? And I think that's a very powerful thing. I think it's powerful because I think it says, we understand the true history of this land. We understand that we are foreigners or immigrants to some sort. And I think that land acknowledgement is an essence of, of honor. And I think that the more we're able 
to do that moving forward, the more people are going to tear down the, that those false images of who we are. And maybe, maybe something will hit here in their heart to say, I want to learn more. Land acknowledgements are great. When you can acknowledge that the land used to belong to so many other ancestral tribes, it does show that people went beyond to look into that research. But that shouldn't be the stopping point. It should be the fact that we should all be doing something to accept and acknowledge indigenous people back onto the, to the land that they once belonged to. A statement about acknowledging the Native Americans is great if it's sincere and if it's historically accurate. I really think of it as just a first step. Like it is not just something we should do to assuage guilt. <laughs> Especially too with universities. You know, when you hear a land acknowledgement, I'm like, that's great. And I'm like, but what are you doing for those tribes and those students that come from there? You know, for here in Wyoming, I would love for the Rappel and the Shoshones and also the Crows and other people, the Utes, other people who have ties to this land to be able to be like, hey, you know what, you get free tuition. You know, that would be a powerful step. And you see that what's happening with Colorado, you know, where they're doing in-state tuition for all those tribes who identify in those areas. That's powerful. Like folks will open a meeting, you know, at a colonial institution with a land acknowledgement, but do nothing to support the Native or Indigenous students. And that does not, that does not correspond. There was this whole time of a rising land acknowledgement movement where it seemed like everybody and every entity and every organization was like, we need to have a land acknowledgement. And in many cases, as crazy as it sounds, for me anyway, it's crazy, is that they would ask Native people to do these land acknowledgements. And they would reach out and say, hey, I have this event. Would you be able to, do you know somebody or would you be able to come and do a land acknowledgement? And to me, that was like such a light bulb moment that these organizations and people don't even realize what a land acknowledgement means or what it signifies or symbolizes. A Native person should not be doing that and should never be asked to do that because we already acknowledge the land. We already know where we come from. We already, you know, we know. So it's really people that are not Native to acknowledge that these are lands that they work, play, and live are lands that were stolen and um, in some cases Natives were forcefully removed. There should also be an implied recognition that the land that you're on legally shouldn't be yours, okay? Almost universally, most of the treaties that were signed were broken by the United States. And so, you know, to sit there and say, oh, thanks for letting us steal all your land. It's sometimes it can, it's disingenuous for one thing, but then it's just uh, condescending and kind of that act of colonization and hegemony where we're saying, oh, you know, we still control you. We still dominate you. So therefore, you know, we have the freedom to say, gosh, thanks for what you've given us. Uh, we're not giving it back. <laughs> I am of the opinion that we live in a capitalist society and the best way to so show support to something is to put your money where your mouth is. Um, so I will frequently tell people to uh, donate to Native organizations, um, even if it's just a little bit, you know, if, if you're doing a land acknowledgement in front of 200 people and then everybody puts two bucks towards an, uh, an organization that can turn into a sizable amount of money, 
um, pretty fast. And so, um, yeah, I, I, they're nice. I think it's time to put something else behind it besides the words. So land acknowledgements are great, but there's so much more work that has to go beyond that to start showing and inviting people back into public lands, federal tribal lands, and say, you know what, this is yours. We still need your input to take care of it. Um, we can't just do it ourselves, and we don't have the funding or <laughs> the man to, you know, put boots on the ground to maintain it. Um, I think incorporating tribes back into their ancestral land is that actual movement to acknowledge they were a part of the land. That was University of Denver professor Ramona Beltran, documentary filmmaker Jordan Dresser, Not Our Native Daughters director Lynette Graybull, Wyoming Outdoor Council's tribal conservation advocate Yufna Soldierwolf, University of Wyoming professor Jeff Means, playwright Marty Strenzewilk, artist Greg Deal, and MMIW advocate and artist Danielle Seawalker. As you can hear, most everyone agrees that land acknowledgments are all well and good, but they aren't enough in and of themselves. They need to be a starting place. And many indigenous activists say one of the best ways is to get creative about giving back the land itself and that it could really mean in today's world. When you're talking about native issues that really matter today, it's land, land, <laughs> and sovereignty. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are the kind of things that they need help with, right? Um, all nations are looking for this. You'll recognize Jeff Means' voice if you've listened to our bonus episodes this season. He's the University of Wyoming Native American history professor who's been my behind-the-scenes guide through this season. But now I want to bring him more fully into the conversation, because Jeff is Oglala Lakota of the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, one of the tribes that reveres the Black Hills. This mountain range is extra sorely missed. Jeff calls them by their Lakota name. Pahasapa. We want the land back. Mm -hmm. um, the loss of Pahasapa or the Black Hills is literally the loss of your spiritual core. Okay. Um, this is a very sacred place, very important in a lot of ceremonies. And to be able to reunite with that and be able to occupy that land again would be able to do nothing but good things for the Lakota. So give us our land back. Whitney Rencounter agrees with this demand. I meet up with Whitney on Zoom, his big office behind him. He's a member of the Crow Creek Hunkpati Dakota tribe and also happens to be the CEO of the Crazy Horse Monument. That's the stone sculpture of the famous warrior located close to Mount Rushmore. And if you don't know, Mount Rushmore is considered by the Lakota tribes to be a desecration of the Black Hills. Here's part of the reason why. There's a place in the Black Hills called Wind Cave. And it's an underground cave that goes for miles and miles. The National Park Service has only mapped out about 5% of it after all these years. We believe and our ancestors tell us that we emerge from the Black Hills, from Wind Cave. We began to starve. Ikdomi, who's a trickster in our culture, he's the one that lured our ancestors out as they were in a spirit form. And when they came out to earth, they became a human, human form. And Ikdomi told our ancestors that it was 
uh, like paradise. It was most beautiful and uh, everything is great. And um, the Black Hills then became a sacred place to us because it was our birthplace. Before European contact, the Black Hills were so sacred that they weren't really used as a place to dwell. What is told to us from our ancestors and our leaders, we would not live in the Black Hills. We would come here maybe throughout the year and gather to pray, to tell stories, to trade, and other tribes would come here as well. First, the Europeans didn't care one way or the other if the tribes kept the Black Hills. In the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851, it was part of the land that was granted to them. From the Cannonball River in the north, along the Missouri River through South Dakota, and over to Nebraska along the North Platte and into the Bighorn Mountains of Wyoming. So it was a huge area of land, and the United States government said, we will protect and preserve this land for you as long as you allow the safe passage of the settlers. As huge as it was, it was still a tiny piece of their original homeland. But they signed the treaty, and then... General George Armstrong Custer came through the Black Hills and discovered gold in the Black Hills, and all these times, uh, more and more settlers were coming through. So the government renegotiated and more or less reinstituted what we call the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. And they said, these are the new stipulations. We, know we cannot protect this large land base anymore. Now we are reducing it to basically just half of South Dakota. So it was still, Black Hills were still included in the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. And then that's when Custer arrived and found gold in the Black Hills in the early 1870s, uh, which led to the Black Hills Act, which took away the Black Hills from our ancestors. The Black Hills Act of 1877 abrogated all the protections granted in the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. Not so coincidentally, Congress passed it just one year after the Army lost the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Congress attached what the tribes call the Sell or Starve Rider. They cut off all rations until they gave up the Black Hills. But the tribes refused to sell. Here's what Crazy Horse said about it at the time. One does not sell the earth upon which the people walk. But our ancestors did not want to sign. So to this day, the Ocheti Shakoi people have never signed that agreement to officially sell the Black Hills. However, we were then pushed onto reservations. So that was the big change for us. So now we have nine reservations in South Dakota for our people. As early as the 1920s, the Lakota started suing to get the Black Hills back. It stayed in litigation for decades. Then, in the 1980s, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the tribe's favor, saying that the U.S. took control of the Black Hills illegally under the Fifth Amendment. It said the U.S. now owed the tribes $17.5 million plus 5% interest accrued since 1877. That added up to $105 million. But the Lakota still refused to take the money. Here's Jeff again. All this money is sitting there uh, waiting for us to sign off. And it's over a billion dollars now. Sitting there waiting for the 
Lakota to say, okay, give us the money. But what that would mean was would be that we would give up every future claim to any of that land. And so we've said no. And that's because we want the land back. And so that $105 million has been sitting in a BIA account accruing interest since the 80s. It's now worth about $1.5 billion. A constant reminder to the tribes of this injustice is Mount Rushmore, the rock sculpture on the face of the sacred Black Hills of Presidents George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. Because the presidents were in power when a lot of horrific things happened to indigenous people, and it's not acknowledged, there is a, a disdain, there is a uh, the, the Mount Rushmore is a reminder of the horrific past that Indigenous people have endured. And so it's hard for Indigenous people to honor that. Matter of fact, when, when Indigenous people look at Mount Rushmore, it's a reminder that even though the, the Black Hills legally belong to Indigenous people, it's a reminder that the government is not upholding their agreement and giving it back to Indigenous people, or at least providing some negotiations on how we can come to an agreement, so to speak. It's just kind of a dead issue in that regard. So indigenous people have to organize and find mechanisms to try to educate. And, and matter of fact, in essence, uh, it just becomes an outpouring of you know, sometimes protests and, and other things. One of those protests is the Crazy Horse Monument, another rock sculpture in the Black Hills. But this one is of the renowned Oglala leader. The whole idea for it came from a Brule Lakota leader. Chief Henry Standing Bear, one of our uh, chiefs and historical leaders, he was attending Carlisle Indian School in, in Pennsylvania and basically on the East Coast. You know, he took a negative and turned it into a positive in terms of his own education. And he began to take the, the war, so to speak, instead of fighting, he figured, you know, he in his mind, a lot of the chiefs and our ancestors said, take the good of the new culture and leave the bad. So he took the good of education. And when he saw Mount Rushmore happening, he wanted a, a monument in the Black Hills to kind of happen and match that so that people would not forget about the Native American culture. We, we would not be erased. So in the 1940s, Chief Henry Standing Bear reached out to a well-known award-winning sculptor, the Polish-American Korczak Szalkowski. Standing Bear commissioned Korczak to create a monument of Crazy Horse. Korczak agreed. Only thing was, Crazy Horse refused his whole life to ever have his photograph taken. So the design had to be based on drawings of him. But it doesn't just represent Crazy Horse. The monument represents the North American tribes. Uh, Crazy Horse just stands at the, as that strong, uh, one of the greatest war heroes in mankind history. And, and he represents the people in that bravery, but, it, but it's more representative of the North American tribes. So we try to honor all tribes and history and the beautiful cultures that we have throughout the nation. Construction began in 1948 and it's still ongoing today. Whitney says there's a good reason for that. We've been blessed to be able to utilize just private donors and supporters We've been blessed not to rely on taxpayer funds 
It would, it would just not be right to use taxpayer funds and government funds, so to speak, to pay for a monument that is dedicated to indigenous people. Korchak's daughter, Ruth, and now his grandson, Caleb, have continued his work. But they choose to use less destructive methods than those that were used to create Mount Rushmore. No explosives, because they want to protect the integrity of the mountain. Instead, they use a carving technique with diamond cable rope. In the next uh, three to five years to 10 years, we're going to see a lot of progress. So uh, obviously the face is complete and, and he's finishing up on the hand where crazy, where crazy horse is pointing, you know, the direction of his ancestors, his people. And then, but in the next three, five, 10 years, there's going to be a lot of progress. Whitney says even only partially complete, people come in droves to see the monument. But when they get there, they find so much more, a tribal university and a museum among them. The Crazy Horse Monument is just one way that the Lakota are laying claim to the Black Hills. Recently, 1,900 acres came up for sale in the Black Hills near a sacred site known as Pesla, a traditional place for sundances and prayer circles. And so the tribes kind of came in and said, hey, we would like to purchase this, and then the owners were receptive to that. So they worked together and, and purchased this land in the Black Hills and utilized it for gatherings, for you know, camps for the youth, and some people say, well, we shouldn't have to buy back the land. Other people say, well, that's kind of legalities of what we're living in today. So we're going to take advantage of that. Jeff is one of those naysayers. He says, sure, it's great that the Lakota owned that property, but it doesn't count as reparations for broken treaties. That was It's land. not federally recognized tribal land. Okay. In other words, it's still going to be taxed. It's, it, you know, all the things to go with owning any chunk of land is going to relate to that certain situations. So in other words, there's no real sovereignty over it. Okay. I mean, I own a home here. Okay. I'm Lakota, but it's not Lakota territory. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So it's the same kind of a situation. It's really not land back. It's for all these reasons that a movement sprang up calling itself hashtag land back. A leader of the Blackfoot Arnell Tailfeathers coined that term in 2018 on social media in an effort to get lands returned in Canada. The group Indian Collective picked it up in the U.S. and used it when former President Donald Trump visited Mount Rushmore. During the pandemic, Trump expressed a desire to get his face added to the mountain. Every single president on Mount Rushmore, now here's what I do. I'd ask whether or not you think I will someday be on Mount Rushmore, but no. Indigenous protesters turned out and were arrested. We have come together as a people to make our voices heard and to represent our opposition to Mount Rushmore as a symbol of oppression, imperialism, and uh, white supremacy. But it got a national conversation rolling. Since then, ideas for how to return land have spread across the American West. We'll hear about some of them when we come back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all.
Let me introduce you to someone I met recently. My name is Rick Williams. I'm uh, an enrolled member of the Ogallala Lakota tribe, and I'm part Cheyenne. And my Indian name is Tallbull. When it comes to the land back movement in Colorado, Rick is the guy to keep your eye on. And he has the background to pull stuff off. For instance, he was CEO and president of the American Indian College Fund for over 20 years, a professor of Indian studies at CU Boulder, and a consultant for the Discovery Channel series How the West Was Won. Not long ago, Rick started poking around in his ancestry. What really got me started on this was I, I decided to research my great-great-grandfather. His name was Whitehorse. He was a leader of the Council of 44 and also a dog soldier leader. And when I got into that, I discovered um, these proclamations that Evans, Governor Evans, the territorial governor, had issued in Colorado. And as I looked at them, both of them were clearly illegal and very destructive to Indian people. You might recall these laws from our story of Sand Creek. The first proclamation called for tribes to go to a certain place in the state and stay there. And if you didn't go there, you were deemed hostile and the state of Colorado was at war with you. The second proclamation, which was even more destructive, when the first one didn't didn't do the job that he wanted it to, the territorial governor Evans said, okay, I'm now gonna authorize all Colorado citizens to kill hostile Indians and for your reward, you can take their property. These laws led directly to the mutilation and murder of over 160 Cheyenne and Arapaho at Sand Creek. Just by chance, I raised the question, were these laws still valid in Colorado today? And it turns out they were. And I spent a year and a half trying to get Governor Polis's attention to do an executive order to rescind those proclamations. Did Rick get those proclamations rescinded? Yes. Yes, in fact, he did. And that got him thinking that there was more that he could accomplish. Immediately after that, a group of us formed what was called the People of the Sacred Land, and we decided we needed to do more as we were learning about the history of what happened to American Indians in in Colorado. So we started this Truth, Restoration, and Education Commission. Or TREC. And they've since hired a consultant to help them investigate the economic losses to Colorado's tribes left behind by the history of the Plains Indian Wars. So we're doing an analysis of illegal occupation. We're doing an analysis of the loss of of an economy because of the buffalo. We're looking at at water rights and oil and gas production. And we're doing a, a comprehensive loss assessment. What's it look like right now? Two, three trillion dollars? You know, at today's values, if we use the calculations at the time of the taking and add 5% compounding interest, which is almost always done in a tort case, it's pretty substantial. It's billions and billions of dollars. And I think that that's important for people, both in the state of Colorado and beyond, 
to recognize how much we really did give up. How much did we lose? How much, how much, what a difference it would have made in our lives. We wouldn't be living in poverty. We wouldn't have 80% unemployment rates on our reservations. The Trek Commission is also investigating how Colorado fraudulently took possession of land that legally belonged to tribes by treaty. They focused on the Fort Wise Treaty of 1861. It should have never been ratified. We have evidence to that, to that effect. That's because two sections of it were bungled. A new Indian agent was assigned to bring in 10 tribal leaders to sign the treaty that would give up most of their land. Only one person signed it, and he was reportedly drunk. So they were never able to bring any of the tribes in to validate the second half of the treaty. And the second half of the treaty would be all of the land north of the South Platte along the Continental Divide up to Casper and then back down along the South Platte River encompassing Wyoming, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, and, and part of Colorado. That was Article 6. Then there's the problem of Article 11. It calls for negotiating with the tribes to sell the tracts of land where many of Colorado's cities along the Front Range were booming after the discovery of gold. But those cities didn't bother with those negotiations. That didn't make the U.S. Senate happy at all. Well, the treaty goes to the Senate. The Senate looks at Article 11 and says, um, we don't like this. So they take it out and they ratify the treaty. Six days after the treaty is ratified, the State Department sends a letter to the Indian, Indian commissioner saying, Article 11 was modified. You need to get the signatures of these Indian people on this contract because it, it's, you know, it's absolutely necessary. It's probably not valid if, if it doesn't have the signatures. Well, they never did that. It never happened. So you have two articles, Article 6 and Article 11. Article 6 invalidates any of the land taking north of the south. Um, Article 11 invalidates the taking of the land to the south. So all of the land in this treaty should have been deemed unseated by any stretch of the imagination. If you want to do something that's honorable and honest, um, that's what needed to happen, and it never did. In fact, the city of Denver muddled Article 11 even more. They passed a resolution saying that the city had been so kind and welcoming to the Cheyenne and Arapaho people that they were going to require the tribes sell their land for a dollar and a quarter an acre. But Denver wasn't kind or welcoming. An Arapaho woman was even raped in Denver while visiting. But remember that Congress had ripped that article out of the treaty before it was ratified. So this left this land up in the air, you know, was the was title transferred some other way? And when they realized that they didn't have legal title to it, Congress passes what's, the, what's called the Congressional Act of 1864, and they basically give the title of the land to whoever was on it in Denver at that time um, at no cost. And the Indian people were never compensated. They never transferred the title and they never were compensated for any of the, the title. So I would say that Denver is probably one of those areas that's really, it's really clear that the land was taken illegally. And, you know, we need to think about how, what's gonna happen to honestly deal with something that happened in the past. That means that the land that was supposedly given up in the Fort Wise Treaty 
over 50 million acres stretching across four states, Trek has found that all of that land was not legally ceded. Then, in 1862, just a year after the Fort Wise Treaty debacle, Congress passed the Morrill Act. The ink wasn't even dried on the treaty when they transferred large portions of the land to educational institutions across the United States, about 10 million acres of land. Land-grant institutions, they're called now. The University of Wyoming, where this podcast is produced, received over 90,000 acres, valued at over $17.5 million, adjusted for inflation. Colorado State University got 89,000 acres, now worth over $10 million. And again, this was all illegal land. And they got it from the Utes, and they got it from the Cheyennes and the Arapahoes to create the institution. So Colorado State University was created on the backs of Indian people. It's, there's no doubt about that. If I was an honorable person and I had some authority at, the Colorado, at Colorado State University, I would be seriously looking into this to see what could be done. What kind of remediation, what kind of restitution could, can you do to help create educational opportunities for American Indian students? Rick says Colorado State University is in a position to make amends for history. Interestingly enough, they still own 19,000 acres of that land that they should give back to Indian people. That 19,000 acres of land is generating oil and gas revenues. The interest off of this endowment should be, should be enough to accommodate, to give every American Indian who wants to go to college their free tuition. Um, you know, we have a wonderful vet school at CSU. I think they should have a, a special program for veterinarians, for American Indian students, and admit a cohort of 10 people every year. Um, that would help our communities. Rick says some colleges and universities are beginning to step up. South Dakota State University, who, very interesting, has got an American Indian president, and they begin initiatives to really support American Indians. And I think you're starting to see it happening across the United States. Ohio State University has done some investigations, and they're trying to figure out how do they make amends to what happened and, and support American Indian higher education. Um, and so I think it's starting to happen. There's some other places like Cornell and, and MIT that really need to be looking at doing more. Cornell University was one of the biggest beneficiaries of tribal lands. They received almost a million acres, now worth $92 million. In total, 52 universities across the U.S. benefited from the Morrill Act. Rick says the time has come to right such wrongs. He set his sights on a specific goal, to make Colorado a welcoming place where its original people feel safe returning to their homeland. We need some long-term structural kinds of opportunities to guarantee a future for the people who are, were alienated from their homelands to be able to come back in ways that they want to. And so one of the proposals is to create an embassy in Denver to bring back the tribes and have them have a say-so in what's happening in their land, in their homeland. But Rick and the Trek Commission don't plan to stop there. How do we 
help the tribes begin entering into co-management agreements with places like Pawnee National Grasslands or Comanche National Grasslands or some of the other federal properties in the state. You know, we we believe that that might be an opportunity for jobs and, and developing uh, new economies for Indian nations. And we have one tribe that is determined to recreate a reservation here. They're going to come here and they're going to purchase land and they're going to call themselves the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe of Colorado and reclaim their territory. Rick says they want to create a reservation even if they have to buy the land instead of get it returned to them by the state of Colorado. He thinks such progress is possible with help from communities that come forward as allies. The city of Boulder is working with the Northern Arapaho tribe to give back the property known as Fort Chambers, where Colonel Shivington once trained his soldiers before marching them over to Sand Creek. And it's in Boulder where there's another interesting example of what the land back movement can look like on a smaller scale. I make a trip to the Dairy Arts Center in the heart of the city's downtown, where I meet up with the center's executive director, Melissa Fathman. I know it's kind of busy today. (laughs) Yeah, is there anything special going on? Often people come here just to meet because they're just so inspired by the work, the artwork around them. And then at night, when all the theaters are teeming with activity, there can be up to 400 people in the lobby. Wow. Right at the front of the arts center is a sign over a door into another wing. Sacred space, the sign reads. And it's here that some very unusual things are happening. The sacred space, um, which is prominently located right as you walk in the door, which is kind of nice. Uh Yeah, it's a nice entrance. I don't know if we describe what it says here on the floor. Yeah, if you don't mind, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Yeah, in in big red letters here. Big red letters. It says, this is native land. Just to be clear that this space is completely dedicated to indigenous artists. Melissa and I walk in across those words into the Sacred Space Gallery. Waiting for us are two people you've met elsewhere in this podcast, both members of Creative Nations, an indigenous artist collective. Marty Strenzewilk is our podcast story editor. He was the managing director of Creative Nations when the Sacred Space first opened, and his plays have been performed in the center's theater. Daniel Seawalker is also here today. She's the activist that we met last episode, who just helped get a bill passed to address the MMIW crisis in Colorado. She also happens to be a visual artist using a mix of traditional and contemporary art styles and is an original founder of Creative Nations. Danielle and I wander around looking at the art show that's hanging in the gallery. One of my favorites is a painting on cloth of three women with the MMIW red hand painting on their mouths. One wall is filled with portraits of superheroes like Black Panther, and the indigenous heroine from the film Prey. So this is Christina Maldonado Badhand. She's a Lakota artist based in Denver. She works a lot in digital mediums and arts. And so she, I think think many of these are digitally drawn and then reproduced via a print. Like she does a lot of portraiture work and then she overlays a lot of it on kind of a ledger art. Afterwards, we all pull up chairs in the middle of the gallery. And I ask Melissa, as a non-native gallery director, what initiated the idea for giving indigenous artists a gallery space? I had always wanted to have some sort of land recognition 
you know, and at the time it was curtain speeches and plaques, and you know, I thought we're in art center, we could do better than that, you know. And then I thought maybe it should be a sculpture. And the more I leaned into it, it started to feel, you know, like after a mass shooting, when people say thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, it's like, okay, well, what does that do? You know, we need something more. We need some some sort of action. So Melissa was puzzling over this question when the art center happened to host a mural dedication on the back of their building for the missing and murdered indigenous women's crisis. In the middle of the mural was the face of Sarah Ortegon. Longtime listeners might remember Sarah. We interviewed her in season one about her life, and she was also a history reenactor in Shell Furnished Medicine, our podcast about pandemics in Indian country. So we invited her to come to the dedication and say some words and did a smudging ceremony. And it was, it was a very simple sentence, and it gets me emotional <laughs> each time, but that she said she was standing out in the parking lot looking up at the Flatirons, this beautiful place that everyone comes to, and there's multi-million dollar homes now and corporate headquarters, and you know, everyone wants to live here and take up you know, real estate. And she basically just said, this is where my family used to live. And I just burst into tears and I was like, oh my God, you know, and that was the click in my heart and my head. I was like, we need to, like, I can't give the land back as a single person, but as someone who runs an art center, I can absolutely carve out space, you know, in our center that's completely dedicated to indigenous artists. So, so that was the thought. <laughs> and then it's like, how do we do that? So Melissa started reaching out to some of the indigenous artists she knew, a poet, a fashion designer, a graphic designer, two visual artists. So I was totally open to, to what it could be, and that's when I met Danielle. And um, who else? Kelly Yen Walt was there, Walpuye, and JC. JC, yeah. So it was sort of the initial core group of people. And it was really, I should maybe hand it over to yeah. your experience now, but it felt really special, you know, because it was during COVID, and so people had a lot more time to, to spend with one another um, and to sort of dream and think about what it could be. And we came and we ended up coming in person and we were all so excited about it, but at the same time, being Native, there's always that like hesitation of, well, what's the catch? Like what, you know, is this really, you know, there's always that hesitation when anything good comes our way, which is quite sad. We ended up coming to the dairy and meeting regularly in person and just spilling out all our dreams and like hopes and like what we envisioned. And some of them were like, as Walt would say, such grand ideas. Marty got involved a little later when he noticed a call for Native artists in the dairy's newsletter. He showed up in person. I hung around awkwardly for a little while, didn't talk to anybody. But eventually, Danielle and Jay, I forget all you guys were here, but whoever's up front spoke for a bit. And afterwards, kind of the, the ice broke of the room, I guess we'll say, right? And I ended up talking to JC and JC kind of said, we were just talking, he's like, I'm like, hey, I'm interested in evolve. He's like, cool, you're in. Like that's JC's kind of way. Is like, if you're, even if you're not interested, maybe he'll still tell you you're in, you know? He was doing that all the time with, with, other, with native artists. And because Marty is Marty, he soon made himself indispensable. I quickly started figuring out like meeting agendas and how we put together our documents. And I was like, oh, no one's done this kind of organizational stuff. I guess I'll do it. And then everyone's like, here, you do all that because you, you know how to do that. I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so eventually Melissa you know, said, this might be a good opportunity for you to lead this program. So Marty took it on. Their first exhibit happened during the pandemic before the gallery was even built. 
One of the founders, the poet Tanaya Winder, had a box of earrings she'd collected from the families of missing and murdered women. We ended up creating this huge missing and murdered indigenous women exhibition that included thousands of earrings that people donated from all over the country. Um, and those earrings are one-sided, so it's just one earring. And it sort of symbolizes like that, that idea of when you lose the other piece of something, you kind of cling to that one that you have and you, in hopes that you'll eventually find them, find the other piece to make everything whole. And that sort of symbolizes missing and murdered indigenous relatives, that the crisis that's currently going on these days. They all tell me that installing that show was intensely moving handling each of those earrings and thinking of the person who once wore it, a person who was taken too soon from this world. The show was a huge success. Danielle says people still talk about it. It took some time to raise the money to build an actual gallery, though. But they made it happen. This space was built like a year and a half into the program. Last September. Yeah. Oh, really? So two years, it was over two years. So it's brand spanking new. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And this is the first time I'm actually stepping foot in. Really? It. Yeah. So it's kind of like full circle. Yeah. Like, yeah. This, is only, this is only the third exhibit in the space? I think that's right. Third yeah. Exhibit. So, really? Yeah. But you might be wondering, because I did, does this really count as a land back project? The way Jeff and Rick visualize land back. Marty says, the Sacred Space Gallery is about more than just land. When he started putting up exhibits, he found out just how serious the dairy was about it. When that was working with front of house staff because we were going to have an opening event, I would think like, what do we have to pay for this? And they'd be like, well, nothing. I'm like, no, no, no. But I mean, like, what, what do I have to write in as the cost that we're going to have to do to run this event? It's like, well, no, that's, that's the whole point, right, is that we're going to support this venue, right? This, so this is your space. Do what you want with them. Within these four walls, you guys can do what you want. And then you have all these people out here to help support the efforts, you know? And so we did, right? Like, we put art on the wall, and we sold real pieces of art. I think we sold 30% of the initial exhibit or something like that. It was substantial. So people made, artists made real money, and 100% of that went back in the pockets of the artists. And Marty says it went even farther than just covering costs and giving artists the money. Melissa and the other dairy staff were careful not to steer the vision for the gallery. I remember very specifically Drew, who's the curator for the dairy. This was kind of a moment for me of recognizing that that split, if you will, um, where I was asking him to make a decision for something that wasn't his to decide because I defaulted him because he's a curator and I'm not. And he said, you're the native person and I'm not. So I'm not making this decision for you. He's like, I don't feel comfortable, nor should I. And I was like, oh, he's right. Like that taking ownership of this. Marty says the gallery counts as a land back effort for another reason too. So what we didn't mention is in the space we're sitting right now, we're paying renters. So people who rented the space and gave revenue to the dairy. And this may come as a surprise, but arts organizations aren't exactly loaded with cash that they can just throw away like it's no big deal. So it's a real sacrifice. So to make that sacrifice is is even bigger than the give, right? To say that we're willing to give something up in order to give back. And I think that's an important part of Land Back is this allyship of showing sacrifice. Yeah. And, and to add to that, it was people that um, were also running arts organizations. So they had a really good deal, really low rent for their office space, and I had to kick them out. So it was kind of a reverse displacement situation that happened, and they were not happy. Oh. And they went out into the community and badmouthing me, and what's this is, you know, this is like tokenism, what are you doing? And that, I mean, it, it was crazy, the things that I got back. Yeah, mm. but I just sort of stayed the course and, you know, like, we have a vision, we're gonna see it through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Part of that vision was pushing back on expectations of what Native American art is supposed to look like. As Westerners, we've seen lots of stereotypical paintings. A warrior in a war bonnet on horseback, but very few paintings of who Native Americans are today. Native art is Native art because a Native artist is making it, not what it's supposed to look like from an outsider's perspective, and that's really disappointing. So I love that this space exists so that we can challenge that. When we had the first exhibit, um, it was curated by Robert Martinez and Bruce Cook, and I remember very distinctly this saying, I, th I think it was Bruce, he said, if I have to paint another fucking buffalo, you know? Um, and it, because that idea of like, that's what native art is. And what was interesting is we said to the artist, whatever you want to put up, there's no theme to the show. It's called Homelands because it's your home and that's it. I've been driving in my Indian car to the pound of the wheels drumming in my brain. My dash is dusty, my plates are expired. Please, Mr. Officer, let me explain. At the Sacred Space Gallery, Native artists aren't sitting down at the dairy's table. They own their own table. Danielle says the Land Back movement will gain momentum as more communities make space for Indigenous leaders to build their own table and invite people to sit down. The Land Back movement is more than, you know, giving pieces of land back to Native or Indigenous people that were here before time of colonization. Obviously, we'd, we'd love that and we'd love for that to happen. And in some cases, it actually is happening. Um, but it's also about engaging with the local Native people in your own communities. And if, you know, if there's already things going on, being Native-led in communities, I always tell people to join in on that. Reach out, see how they can support and be an ally. Um, and we need that because even if every single Native person stands up and we all shout at the same time, we're still not loud enough. And so we definitely need that support and allyship. And I think some people often feel timid or, or they're like, I'm not really sure if I'm going to be welcomed or, you know, am, am I able to come to a powwow? Am I able to like do this or that? And it's like, yes, absolutely. But Danielle says the Land Back movement is also very much about welcoming original people back to their homelands. She's been working with Colorado lawmakers on a way to do just that. I want to, um, in the next session, hopefully introduce a bill that allows Native people to access state parks without having to be charged so that we can harvest our medicines, we can pray in sacred spaces. This state has a lot of sacred land spaces that are inaccessible to many Native people because of those fees. So that's one way of land back that I'm trying to sort of introduce. She says one of the most important things that the Land Back movement is doing is making people aware of the need to address the injustice of stolen land. I run into it all constantly that people think Native people are a homogenized group of people. You know, I've been asked a couple times, how do you say goodbye in Native American? <laughs> or something like that. And I'm like, okay. Or like, oh, I love the Native American culture. Okay, well, which, which one? <laughs> so, I know. So it's definitely a misconception, and we are constantly, still to this day, that's what people think. When, when I'm having these conversations, whether it's with an organization or an individual, um, I always say, do you know where you live? like what the tribes are that are from the, that area, most times it's, no, I don't. That's the starting point. I always, always tell people, research where, where you live and who was here before you. Um, and then from there, that's where you can pursue land back engagement and opportunities.
After my trip to visit the Sacred Space Gallery, I ask my friend Jeff Means what he thinks. As our resident hardliner on the question of land back, I want his take. Was it enough for an art center to give control to Native artists of an art gallery, even if it was legally forever? His answer was, mm, not quite. It's about land because land eventually means control, power. You know, the power to maybe be able to be self-sufficient and not need the Bureau of Indian Affairs anymore. And, uh, you know, this social space or this intellectual space or these kinds of things can be ephemeral, though, and go away after somebody leaves, right? Land's permanent. <laughs> right. Right. And the resources that that brings to a Native nation uh, are therefore permanent. So the land is the key. Next time on The Modern West, we circle back to where we started to ask how Indigenous communities are finding paths towards real healing through cultural traditions, through oral histories, through the arts, like Paiute artist Greg Deal. What would Native communities look like 100 years from now? Um, can they still exist? Are they going to still exist? What does language look like? What does tradition look like? There's a lot of really exciting ideas, but the most exciting idea to me is the fact that we can still exist. That's in our eighth and final installment of our series, Mending the Hoop. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Ojibwe playwright Marty Strenzewilk. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer and line editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Ryan Kelly is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from Tina Unger-McGee, Emily Jankowski, and Courtney Blackmer-Reynolds. To see Anna Castro's original photography for this season, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Music by Eastern Shoshone musician Sean Francis and his band, Pegasus, Klingit musician Kasky Russell, and Apache musician Andrew Vasquez, among others. Special thanks to Northern Arapaho musician Ben Ridgely and his band Sand Creek for the song Indian Cars. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other Native tribes who call the Great Basin and the Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside Indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. We always love hearing from our listeners. Reach out to us at themodernwestpod.com at gmail.com. We're also on social media at Modern West Pod. If you love this show and care about this kind of storytelling, share it with a friend or leave us a review. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod. <laughs>